0: The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com We have been going through the Christmas account, the uh, birth of Christ and the Gospel of Luke, and so we're going to pick up at Luke chapter 2, right after uh, Zechariah has sung his song about the birth of John the Baptist. And we are going to be uh, picking up Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius, the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. And then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away with them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. Which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying, lying in a manger, when they saw it, they made known the saying that was been told to them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered and what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Father, we thank you for this account, this story, this recollection of Jesus' birth. And we ask that by your spirit, we would understand your word and that we would treasure Jesus in our hearts like Mary and that we would see your extraordinary glory in these ordinary things. For Jesus' sake, amen. So we've been doing this uh, sermon series, kind of looking at these different songs in the beginning of Luke. So we started out looking at Mary, Mary's song of joy. Uh, Mary, who was the, obviously the mother of Jesus, um, who responded to God's word, you're going to have a baby with faith. And then we looked at Zechariah's story, where he had a bit of a different reaction, Bit of a you know (laughs) Mumford and Sons type guy, doubting God's uh, word to him, and so we looked at his uh, song when he was able to speak, his song of salvation about the coming of Jesus, and then we're picking up tonight with the uh, song of the angels. Not nearly as long as Mary and Zacharias, so the angels takes up one verse, and the other guys they sang some pretty extensive songs. But uh, it's still a song nonetheless. And so the song that we're looking at tonight, um, again, I, I might not be the smartest guy, but I'm looking at verse 14 and it says, glory to God. I think the song's about the glory of God. <laughs> it seems pretty obvious to me that that is what this song is about. And so what before we start looking at this song and about this, at this text, I think... Um, It's going to be helpful just to ask the question, what does glory even mean? Because if if we're looking at glory in this passage, I don't know about you, but when I think about glory sometimes, I'm like, is that like a big bright light? Or is it like singing a really loud song? It's not really clear what glory is, right? I don't know about you, but it's not, we use the word glory, and it's like, wow, it's glorious. It's not quite clear what that means. So, Uh, I have turned to our our good friend, uh, John Piper, to kind of get a sense of how do we define glory. There's one thing that I would associate with John Piper, which glory, Um, and he, uh, he gives us these kind of helpful categories that glory is seeing the size, value, and beauty of God, and so to kind of unpack what that means. When we talk about glory, what does it mean to see the glory of God, to see the size, value, and beauty of God? The size, if you were imagining, you see uh, a cell tower from a distance, and it looks kind of big, and then you get up really close to the cell tower, it's really big. You get to you get to see kind of like the map, like just how big it is in comparison to what you thought you saw, or like the White Mountains. They look really, really pretty from a distance, and then you go through the Franconia notch, and you're just like this is gigantic and beautiful and huge. So there's a size, like you get, once you get closer to, to them, the size of it becomes clear, right? And then talk about the value, value of God. Um, maybe a picture for this is, uh, so obviously Owen is my oldest son. And if you were to go to Owen and say, Owen, um, so your dad is kind of like, you know, the average American male. If you were to go to him and say, here's a larger, smarter male. <laughs> do you want him for your dad instead? Hopefully his answer would be <laughs> no, because he knows that while well, this guy might be larger, stronger, smarter than me, um, not hard to do, you would know, but this is my daddy. My daddy knows me. He loves me. He cares about me. He knows the personal... Uh, he knows the personal relationship that I have with him. So he knows that there is a value that I have to him that is different than any other kind of simple substitute. And when we get to know who God is, when we see more clearly his mercy and his kindness and his goodness to us, his value, his, his glory becomes clear to us, right? We see the value of who God is. And then in terms of the beauty of God... Um, Honestly, the image that comes to my mind is um, any time you go to a wedding, everybody wants to see what's, how beautiful is the bride. You know? I'm happily married to the most beautiful woman I know. I go to a wedding and I think, that is a beautiful woman in that wedding dress. She is beautiful. And that's the same way with God. We, we want to see and know, wow, he is worthy to be celebrated. What is it about God that is so alluring and beautiful. So the more we get to see him, we get to not only see that he's beautiful, but we want to celebrate it. So so these are kind of like some categories. Is this helpful to categories of like seeing the size, value, and beauty of God Is kind of the ways into what is this category of what does it mean to glorify God? So to see those things is to to see, to savor, and celebrate this, the glory of God. Is that making sense in terms of how we understand the category of glory? So when we get to this passage that is all about the glory of God, what we're going to be doing is we're just going to be looking through this passage together and just making some observations about the glory of God that we see here in the story and the birth of Jesus. Because what we expect to find with glory, which we, which we would expect to be astounding, maybe extraordinary, what we find in this story Maybe is a bit more ordinary, and yet it's still God's glory. So, if you'd pick up with me, just we're going to look at the glory of God and His providence. So, we're just going to pick up chapter two, verse one, verses one through seven. I'm sorry we don't have slides tonight. I was going to do them this afternoon, but uh, I got a little diverted. With um, <laughs> I had a, I had a lot of snow, which I actually really enjoyed snow blowing. I just really it's the power of the snow blower. <laughs> um. Chapter 2, verse 1, the glory of God. Luke, chapter 2, verse 1. Here it is, right back here. Right there. Yeah, you got it. So, Luke, chapter 2, verse 1, the glory of God and his providence. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration from Cornelius, who was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up, with, um, went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. There was no place for them in the inn. So here we have kind of the, uh, the circumstances, right? The, the context, the circumstances of what was going down when Jesus was born. And the circumstances include getting uh, Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that Jesus could be born in Bethlehem and while that might seem kind of like a circumstantial like well you know they just went from Salem to conquered like no big deal it was to fulfill a prophecy that God had made 700 years before so Micah chapter 5 verse 2 the prophet says but you O Bethlehem who are too little to be among the clans of Judah from you shall come forth from me for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel who's coming forth is from of old, from of ancient days. So here is God making this promise in Micah that Bethlehem, though they're a little potunk trailer park town, are going to have the Messiah is going to come from the trailer park outside, you know? So now the the thing that you have to understand is that this is a prophecy that was made 700 years before Jesus was born. Um, And just to give you a sense of like how far like 700 years is, like, um... I, I looked this up, and I used the power of Google to kind of clarify this for me. What was going on in the 1300s? <laughs> if you're wondering, what was going down in the 1300s? The Black Death, <laughs> which killed one-third of Europe. That was uh, 25 million people in Europe at the time. That was 700 years ago, the Hundred Years' War between Britain and France. So the Great Schism, which was, at the time, the Roman Catholic Church, they happened to have three popes, and they're all duking it out to see who's going to be the real real pope. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but in the 1300s, Norway, Sweden, and Denmark were one kingdom. I did not know that. I learned that. The Renaissance was starting. John Wycliffe. So we take for granted that we have our Bibles in English. John Wycliffe in the 1300s was translating the first English Bible 700 years ago. Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which is a great story, one of the defining texts of the English language, was, was written 1300s, and just to put this in perspective because we think we have, we have the luxury of the printed book today, the printing press was not invented until the 1450s so like, there weren't even like printed books in England all these people walking around quoting Monty Python not able to have a printed book <laughs> So here they were 700 years ago, that's what was going down 700 years ago. So you can imagine, over that course of 700 years, you imagine if somebody made a promise um, in the 1300s when they didn't even have like a printed book. Something's going to happen in 700 years. I mean, how ridiculous it is to expect that that's going to happen. So here we are Micah makes his promise that the Savior, the Messiah, is going to be born in the little town of Bethlehem, and I'm going to make sure that it happens. God's providence controls the details between that 700-year-old promise and the birth of Christ. So we have here, in those days, the verse 1, in those degrees, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So here we have the king of the time, or the Caesar, making this political maneuver, exercising his power, flexing his muscles, and like most Um, government politicians, not not a slam on any politician, but they like their taxation. They like their money. They want to get their money. They want to make sure everybody's accounted for so they get all their taxes. So he is flexing his political muscles to show off his power, to get everybody tallied up so that he can get his money. He is doing a political power move, and yet, at the same time, he is a servant and a puppet of Almighty God. His decision to make this whole thing happen is a part of God's providence, his control, his plan of all the events going on to make sure that Mary and Joseph get from their little Potunk town to the trailer park town of Bethlehem to make sure that Jesus is born there. God is, his glory is controlling all of these little idiosyncratic, little silly details. They're all under his control. I find helpful because here is God orchestrating everything to not only fulfill his word but to show that he's got, he's got it all of control he's calling the shots and though Herod the or Caesar Augustus who thinks he's got it going for him he's got to obey whatever God says is going to happen the other part of this is helpful so God's providence is, contr- is controlled and um, confirming his word. Here we have all these little details that are meant to tell us this isn't just kind of like a good moral story that happened at some point, right? I have a friend in the city, we were talking once, not a Christian. It's like, so how do you know that this story, that this book is not just something to keep keep the masses under control, to keep people in line, right? I mean, it's ther- you know, therapeutic value, and it's, it's details like this, so you can go and find Caesar Augustus actually existed. He gave this decree, actually happened. These towns actually were there. The, the, the glory of God is tied to actual, real, historical details. God's providence controls those things. So God's providence, that word means, is that his, his governing control controls these details so that we can know God and know that he's true, and know who he is. And if he's controlling all these details to say, Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem, we see his glory, we can begin to kind of come up close to see, God is controlling these things, so that the Savior can be born to fulfill God's word. That means whatever's going down in my life right now, I can trust that God is going to fulfill his promises for me in Jesus. Because God fulfilled his promises about Jesus. And he's promised to say, any promise that I've made to you and Jesus, I'm going to make it happen. So that providence, while it might seem a bit weird at times, does fulfill God's word. So let's pick up verse 8. So we've seen God's glory in his providence. We're going to see God's glory in his choosing. So verse 8, And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So this might, this is the sort of thing where we kind of think of, shepher- like today, we think of shepherds and think, man, like the farmer life has got to be awesome, <laughs> you know, like get out of the city, it might be great to go watch a bunch of sheep, yeah tend to them. Very picturesque. At the time, shepherds were actually kind of like the low-rung dregs of society, right? They, So at the way they kind of think that, thought about society, it was you have the high-power men at the top, and you have slaves at the very, very, very bottom, and then above the slaves, you have women, and then right above women, you have shepherds. <laughs> it That's that's not the way, (laughs) that's not what God says. That's how the culture saw it, right? (laughs) Not good. But so the the shepherds, they were dirty. They were unclean. They were out on the outskirts. They were always like roaming around. Um, Because they were always dealing with animals, they were never actually able, according to the the rules of the time, not able to go into the temple. So they weren't even able to go in and worship God. So these were like, these are like the last of the last of the people that you would have Chosen to be the messengers of god 's son being born right this is these are not the people that you would, you and I would have chosen it kind of like and, uh, to contrast it um, this is not a political comment, but it would happen with any presidential election and president elect but in the last few weeks if you 've been watching the news you 've been seeing. President-elect has been having all of his new cabinet members coming in and interviewing them. And who are they? They're all the power brokers of the world, right? They're all the power brokers. They've got a lot of power, a lot of money. It's going to happen whether it was Trump or Clinton, so that's not a comment on (laughs) who's being elected. But it's just the way politics works. When God brings in his king, he does not choose the wise, the powerful, the well-dressed the clean, the well-shaven. He chooses the people that are the weak, the weary, the broken, the needy, the people who have nothing to bring, nothing to offer. So you have Jesus saying in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. See, God chooses people to show that God's great, not because they're great. God chooses to reveal himself to people like you and me. I mean, if you know Jesus, the one thing you know about yourself is that you are broken and needy and that you are the type of person that uh, cannot fix themselves. And that's the type of people that God loves to speak to. That's the type of person that God chooses to reveal himself to. And when he re- chooses to reveal himself, it's not like a question, is this going to happen? Are they going to get the message? Are they going to understand? When God reveals it, he reveals himself and he says, this is, who I, th- this is who I am. I am in Jesus saving the world. Which I think, if, uh, if you're here tonight, or if you know Jesus, it should, it should uh, maybe stir humility in our hearts, because here we are, just like these unclean, on the outskirts, outcasts, shepherds, just like them. Uh, We are not the power brokers of the world, and yet God has graciously come and revealed himself to us that we would know him. We're the people that God wants, not because we're so great, though you guys are all looking very nice tonight, not because we're great, but because we can't fix ourselves. That's the type of people that God loves to make his family. That's the type of people that God gloriously shows himself to be in choosing. So who does he reveal himself? How does, how does this revelation of who he is come? We're just going to keep going with the text. Verses 9 and 13, we see the angels, right? And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. No kidding. And suddenly there, verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God. So here's the deal. Angels always show up throughout the Old Testament uh, pretty regularly. And when they show up, they're usually kind of like like God's battle army, right? Like they show up and uh, if you've seen Lord of the Rings, I kind of think of them as like the elves in Lord of the Rings. Like they got like the nice, very kind of like sleek and like just like, And like, these are like, they're good looking, but you don't want to mess with them. You know, like that type of thing. You know, like they are the army of God. And when they show up, business is going down. And so you can understand when one of them shows up, the shepherds are like, oh no, I'm I'm about to get my head chopped off like an orc or something like that. You know, like this is about to like not go good for me. And yet here these angels show up. No, 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 no. Shepherds show up. We are here, do not be afraid, we're here to tell you of the king and his battle plan. They're showing up, and they're like showing up to muster. They're being mustered like like the forces of an army being mustered, bows, guns ready, standing at attention, but they are not coming to do the battle. They're coming to stand and declare. The king is coming, right? These angels are coming, and they're saying, the king is coming to do his own battle, And he will do this glorious and amazing and history-turning event. And he's going to do it in the most unexpected way. He's not going to do it through the flashbang of an amazing army. He's not going to do it through the amazing power dynamics of a Caesar. He's he's going to do it through the birth of a little baby. A little baby is going to come. And that's how God's going to do his battle plan. That's how God's glory is going to be seen. This strange God is going to reveal his glory in the ordinary birth of a little boy, which uh, I think should just kind of begin to, as we're talking about the size, the value, and the beauty of God, it should begin to kind of raise some really kind of like strange categories of like, this God does not operate according to our expectations. Like if it were my plan... I'd be like, I'd want the most decisive decision possible. I'd want it immediately. I'd want there to be no lag time with the action plan happening. And I'd want it to happen right away with a lot of power. Like, let's just get this thing done. God says, no, I'm going I'm to make a prophecy. I'm going to wait a few hundred years. And then it's going come to come to happen through the birth of a little baby boy. These angels are in some ways helping us recalibrate our expectations of God's glory because we expect the spectacular. And often God comes and reveals Himself in the ordinary. So what do what do these angels say? So the glory of God let's pick up first ten through eleven. The glory of God and the joyful news. And the angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So here, last week we looked at, uh, looked at the King David and the promise to his son, I'm going to send a king and that king is going to be a king forever over an eternal kingdom. He's going to provide and protect. So we looked at that and then here we have all these names, right? In verse 11, a savior who will free you from guilt and shame. A savior who will free you from the judgment of God. Who is Christ Christ who will redeem you out of your bondage and oppression, who will redeem you out of your addictions and peculiarities, who will redeem you out of all the things that would tie you to Satan's sin and death. He will redeem you out of those things and then he will be your Lord and he will reign over you in love and grace and he will fill you with the Spirit so you can know and obey God. These are the names of this little baby that's being born. He'll be a savior. He'll be a Christ. He'll be a Lord. And what you remember, who asked for these things to happen? (laughs) Nobody did. God said, I'm going to do this plan and this is how it's going to go down. I'm going to send my son and my son's going to be born so that he fulfills all these promises I made about him. He's going to be a savior, and he's going to be a Christ, and he's going to be a Lord, and he's going to reign over a new people forever and ever. He is going to lead them out of all their shame and brokenness into the clean light of the presence of God, which should stir joy. <laughs> for it, it's, Nobody asked for this. All the problems that you're facing... I mean, if you're just like me, you, you obsess over your problems, I obsess over my problems, and I just get myself in these ruts, like a, like a hamster in the wheel. I just keep staying in the same spot. But God reaches in, and he changes everything, because that's who he is. He loves to redeem. He loves to save. He loves to free and to make new This is the news that he is bringing. Joy is essential to the gospel. This gospel that God sends his son to redeem people out of darkness and brokenness and sin and make them sons and daughters of the living God. Joy is essential to the gospel. Is there joy in your gospel? When you think about God, you think about what he's done for you you think about who's done for you in Jesus, we get together, even in the cold room, <laughs> to worship God. Is joy, is expectation of undeserved joy, is that an essential mark of what it means to worship God for you? Because that's what's essential about what God wants for you. Is your gospel filled with joy? Is your life filled with joy? Do you know this joy? Are you a person driven by joy? Are we people that are driven by joy together in Jesus? I think we are. i love to see you guys worshiping Jesus and being joyful about it because we're just doing what God's already told us to do. <laughs> God, do you ever wonder what God wants for you? Yes, he wants you to obey him. But it's a joy-filled obedience. I mean, that doesn't seem oppressive at all. It's an invitation to happiness and fulfillment in Jesus. It's a joyful, is your gospel a gospel of joy? I think that's something to wrestle with as we go into this Christmas season because this birth of Christ is a joyful, joyful, joyful event. So let's pick up verse 12. The glory of God and signs, small and big, so we have the angels saying, and this will be a sign for you. What's that sign? You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then a bunch of angels showed up. A multitude of angels showed up, and they started singing. So we have the small sign, baby born, and then the big sign, the angels. And I just have to say, I think this is one of those weird moments where I thought about those Okay, a sign. So like a sign is usually driving on the highway, do, you know, take exit 29 to go to Compton or whatever. Um, A sign is supposed to be a specific moment where you see something special about God and a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. In this context seems absolutely unimpressive and ordinary. Like they were, they're camping out, In a barn, in a small trail park town. Seems like a baby that would have just been born probably would have been wrapped up. (laughs) And it does not seem out of the ordinary for it to be laying down in a manger. Maybe that's the weird part. Maybe that's the unique part. But I think the point of this is that it is in fact ordinary. That Jesus is wrapped in a baby. The baby is wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger And what the sign is, what the thing that's unique is not about all the trappings of who he is or what he's wrapped in, but about who he is. Not all the external, in a manger, wrapped. That's all ordinary. What's extraordinary is who he is. C.S. Lewis has this great little line, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. Here is the son of God. Who has taken on flesh and he has become a little baby. So when you when you hold little Elijah or little Silas, you can imagine Jesus was this size. the Son of God, the Son of God who created and sustains the universe by his mere command, exists and we have air to breathe. He's taken on a little little frail baby. Little body. And it's not just kind of that moment. The reality is that the only thing that's really extraordinary about Jesus' life is who he is. He was a carpenter, common, lived common life. We're told that he was not handsome in any way. So whenever we're watching, you know, the Avengers and Captain America as this real like handsome looking guy, not Jesus. Jesus was just a normal dude, looked just like a normal dude, worked like a normal dude, lived a life like a normal guy. His death, in fact, was common, right? He died a common criminal's death. To make that point, Luke puts him right between two common criminals, right? He, common criminal on the left, common criminal on the right, and there's Jesus in the middle, the assumption this happens every day. Jesus is just another one of the guys that has, has execution hanging over him. But what is astounding about Jesus is not the external things, but is the, it is the reality of who he is. He is the son of God who lives a perfect life, who brings into this world the new kingdom of God, lives out mercy and love and total obedience and dependence upon God, and lives his life in our place so that when he goes into God's presence after his resurrection, God looks at him well pleased with his son, And now in him, all these things are true about us. He looks at you, well-pleased, not because of your extraordinary life, but because of Jesus' extraordinary person and what he accomplished in the ordinariness of our life, which I think is just the way our normal lives are. I think one of the joys I have of being a pastor is getting to know each of you. And getting to see God work his extraordinary grace, his extraordinary glory in your life, and what by all observations are ordinary acts of obedience to God. That most people in this room may not even know between each other. But I get the privilege of seeing God work his grace in your life so that you are making small decisions of sacrifice, small decisions of uncomfortable obedience, And those do not just come from anywhere. Those are God's amazing, extraordinary grace in your life. I was just spending some time with um, Claudette. Um, I I don't know if you guys know, I mean, Claudette is a part of the church. She uh, sits over here sometimes in a wheelchair, so she's got some health struggles and she's in the hospital right now. And so we were sitting there and talking. She was just explaining her struggles right now. And then she got to talking to me about how sometimes God will wake her up at three o'clock in the morning and she'll just start praying for people. And then she'll get a phone call the next day saying, you know, you were praying for me. You know, somebody will call her out of the blue and say, like, you know, I was really struggling. I was, I just don't know what to do. And then around three o'clock in the morning, I was just, I felt God's presence and was able to hand him the struggle. She said, so here is... Here's Claudette, not doing anything extraordinary. She's she's literally laying in a hospital bed, praying for somebody at 3 o'clock in the morning. Nobody else sees that. And yet, the extraordinary grace of God has shaped her to be a woman of prayer who cares about other people. And that He uses this extraordinary moment of His grace that looks absolutely ordinary to the rest of us. He uses this extraordinary moment of grace to work in somebody else's life, to answer her prayers for this person. And that's just a small... Actually, I was talking with Claudette, I said, Claudette, do you mind if I show this, folks? She's like, it's fine. But I see this happening in each of your lives where, just like this situation, where it, it's ordinary, 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 ordinary. The extraordinary part is what God is doing. What God is doing in your life to say no to the addiction, to say no to the temptation, to say no to the struggles and to desire to obey God, to make the small decisions to obey him, to desire to know God. So let's pick up in verse 14 as we were talking about the glory of God in this passage. Verse 14, the angels were singing this, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. We're seeing here the glory of God In his peace, because here God is bringing peace to us. We've talked about this, and we've kind of alluded to it. But the peace that God is bringing is not a political peace, so that all that the two parties get along, the aisles cross, and everybody gets along. The peace that He is bringing is, He would say in Romans five, chapter one. Therefore, since you have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are talking about. Peace with the creator of the universe to whom we will all give an account. We will all stand before God and the peace that God offers is being brought into the world through Jesus. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. We are made at peace with God by trusting in Jesus, by looking to him and trusting that all the ways that we have offended God Jesus came and took our place for him so that when God looks at us, there is peace between us. We sit down together with God and we eat dinner. That's why we have a meal together after worship. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, this is God's promise of peace between us. We are at peace with God. I don't know what what anxieties you're coming in with, what struggles from this week. I don't want to diminish the pain and suffering that you might be walking through. But God has made peace with you in Jesus. And if you're sitting at God's table with Jesus, at peace with God, you have an infinite ear with the Father. You have infinite ear and access to God for infinite resources with him. Grace, all the small acts of obedience we were just talking about, grace to say no to those things, grace to say yes to obeying God, grace for finding fresh joy, if you're struggling with joy for this Christmas. We have peace with God. And then it's not only just that we have peace with God, but now we are becoming a people of peace. I think one of the things that I find most fascinating when when I talk to friends of ours that have, come to our worship service, aren't Christians yet, but they're coming here and being in our worship service. Talk to them afterwards. They're just like, you know, I just, I finally was able to just kind of like to relax and be at peace. Like That's because God's here. Because you're encountering God. Able to relax. Suddenly all the voices stopping. Because you're in God's presence. And you're in God's presence. You are, you're suddenly... At a peace that you don't deserve, right? We don't deserve to be to enjoy this peace. Like we, by if we were left to ourselves, it would uh, it would not be good, right? (laughs) Not be good. If I was left to myself, I would be a lonely, bearded, angry old man. But we're at peace with God. If you have a beard, it's not a sign of not being at peace with God, though. (laughs) We are at peace with God. Because God here has declared, I'm at peace with you. And now we're able to go, I don't know what Christmas looks like for you, but maybe it's being with family that you don't really like, or you have contention with, or friends that you are not at peace with. And here we're now becoming a people of peace, where we can become agents of taking God's peace and bringing it to those relationships, where we begin to be Like God, make being peacemakers around us. Then let's pick up in verse fifteen. The glory of God in the glory of obedience and worship. The angels went away from them into heaven, and shepherds said to one another, and the shepherds said to another, Let us go over to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at the shepherds, at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen as it had been told them. So I find it just interesting to observe. Here we have in the, st- the stories we've looked at, we've had Mary, who's had an angel show up and say, Mary, going to have a baby. She says, okay, how is this going to happen? And Zechariah, same thing, but he, says the qu- he asks the question, okay, how are we going to have a baby, but he doesn't believe God is really going to follow through on it. The shepherds have angels show up, a multitude of angels. Remember, these are like war angels showing up, and they're like, let's get to it. They've said, go worship Jesus. We're going to go worship Jesus. And they just go right into town. They immediately obey because they see the joy of what God is doing. And they are joining in the celebration of heaven at the arrival of Christ for the salvation of mankind. Right? They, they see what's happening. These are the people that you would least expect. But they obey God immediately and run into Bethlehem ecstatic. Telling everybody, hey, can, can you have, This is the Messiah. I know it just looks like a little baby. (laughs) A little baby in a manger. But this is the Messiah we've been waiting for. And then they turn and they, verse 20, glorify and praise God. Right? So here we are. We we started asking, what is it to glorify God? See the size, value, and beauty of God. To to see, savor, and treasure, and celebrate God. They have seen the size of God who is sending his son into this little tiny ordinary baby. But they've seen that this God's massive plan comes to the realization through this little baby. They've seen the value of a God who cares not about the outward appearance of shepherds who are dirty and dingy and do not deserve to be God's messengers. And yet he's the one he chose them specifically to come to. He's a gracious God who comes to those type of people like us. And then the beauty of God. Who is he sending? The Savior, the Christ, the Lord. The one that we least expected and didn't ask for. He sent him because he wants to redeem. He wants to save. He wants to change. He wants to change us. You know, I was listening to the story this last week, a very, very difficult story uh, on a radio show called This American Life, and it was about a woman who... Um, gone through some very, very, very uh, dark, uh, she was a victim of some very dark things. And her daughter was interviewing her and asking her kind of, you know, this is 20 years after the fact. She'd been kidnapped, she'd been held hostage for five hours, you you can imagine what happened. The daughter's asking her 20 years later, you know, what did, what was the long-term effect of that? And her mom said, I don't sing anymore. Her mom had been an opera singer on Broadway and in response to all this tragedy and darkness that had happened to her, was that she doesn't sing anymore. Here, in the darkness of the night, in the darkness of our lives, the light of God, the glory of God, shines in the darkness at the birth of Jesus to free us from all of our sin and shame and darkness, so that we can sing again. So that we can praise God. We can praise him for his glory. Because now we see, we see him, we're, we're leaning in, we're closer up, we can see who he is. This is the type of God we worship. So when we sing songs beginning and end of our worship service, we sing not because we have great voices. We sing because we see the glory of this extraordinary God and these ordinary things. The glory of our extraordinary God in the salvation of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story of Jesus' birth. We ask that you would fill us with joy. Would you comfort us where we are struggling? And would you lift our eyes to see you more clearly that we might sing and praise you? In Jesus' name.